Don and Edwina. And it's good to be with you here today, the Lord's house. Get, uh, we continue with our, uh, our, our series on the Sermon on the Mount. So turn with me please to Matthew chapter 5. And we'll be looking at one particular verse today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. We'll read to verse 12. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you this morning that we have an opportunity to look into your word, and I pray that our hearts indeed will be ready to receive it. Lord, that we would grow a little bit more this morning, that our minds would be conformed more to your mind, and Father, that we would understand our place and where you would have us to be. Lord, give us your wisdom today. Give us your knowledge. I pray that your, your spirit would be our teacher and our guide. And I pray that I would be used as an instrument in your hand. We thank you once again for your word. And we pray that our lives would give you the glory because you deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the Antarctic. Who's ever been in the Antarctic, Antarctic before? No, you don't, not a favourite holiday destination, obviously, of most of you. Um, in 1908, it was a quite, a, quite a while ago, there was a fellow called Sir Ernest Shackleton who decided he was going to trek down to the South Pole. So he thought to himself, I'll take three of my buddies, we'll get ourselves some donkeys, and we'll, uh, we'll start working our way down there. So in the summer of, uh, of Antarctic in 1908... He set off with four ponies to help carry the load. And a few weeks later, the ponies were dead. They were running out of food. And he and his mates decided, we're not going to make it to the South Pole. So they decided to turn back. Now, as on their journey back, mind you, the trek lasted 127 days. 127 days going through the Antarctic. So it would have been quite, a, quite an interesting ordeal for them. But on their return journey, he writes in a book that all they spent their time doing was talking about food. As they spoke, I mean, I can imagine that they would, they'd be sitting around a little campfire or they'd be, they'd, they'd be huddled together. They'd talk about elaborate feasts when they got back. They'd talk about gourmet delights, sumptuous menus. All they spoke about was all these meals they were going to have when they got back because obviously they were living on not very much. They had dysentery and other nasty things that were, that were going on. And they didn't even know if they were going to survive. So every waking hour, as they're trudging through the, the blizzards and the freezing cold, most of their thoughts were just focused on eating. 
Now, we can understand that obsession with food because after 127 days of, of not eating properly, and I can imagine those last days would have been the worst. Um, they probably ate their donkeys. What do you reckon? I think the donkeys wouldn't have lasted. Um, you can imagine how much effort would have gone into hoping they were going to, you know, hoping for a good warm meal and, and all those sorts of things. And if you imagine yourself in that position, you can appreciate um, what Jesus is talking about in verse 6, which we'll be looking at today, which says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So this is the type of hunger and thirst that Jesus is talking about. That type of one-eyed and one, one, one thing that consumes a person as they're going through their life, that they want to do right. They love righteousness. They love goodness. That's the one thing that consumes them. So much like uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton and his friends, this is the same sort of this is the same sort of obsession the Bible says that we are to have as Christians about righteousness. So today, I'd like us to uh, answer this question in our own hearts. You don't have to answer it to me. You need to answer it to yourself and to the Lord. Do I have this hunger? Do I have this type of obsession about doing good in my life? Because if you don't, then you need to question your motives and question, are, are you being distracted from your primary purpose in this world, which is to live as God would live, which is to live like Jesus Christ? which is to have the same passions and desires that he had rather than the passions and desires of this world. So we'll be looking at that uh, this morning in earnest. Okay, But let's define something, because I think when I say the word righteousness, is it an easy thing for you to, to picture in your mind? Righteousness. What is it? How do you define righteousness? If I said to you, your desire... I mean, you, when you, if, if someone's got a desire for food, you can picture food, can't you? sits in a plate, you know, it's, it's either going to be meat or vegetables or those sorts of things. You can picture it in your mind, but how do you picture righteousness? What does it look like? What does it feel like? How does it, how does it look? Because there are plenty of people in the world who do, do good things, aren't there? But is that righteousness, the way the Bible describes righteousness? So let's have, we're going to look at a bit about that this morning. The first thing we need to understand is what is righteousness? And let's define it. Okay, the Webster Dictionary defines righteousness. It says, acting in accord with a moral law. Acting in accord with a moral law, free from guilt or sin. Morally right or justifiable. Moral laws and morally right. Okay, morality. Where do we find morality? I mean, the world has a sense of morality, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. The world, the world has an undefined sense of morality because morality in this world depends on how you were brought up, where you lived, in what century you lived, and in fact, it may even change from time to time. I hate using football once again as, a, as, a, as an example, but if you go back to the way football was played you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, yeah, there were there were certain things they used to do which are a big no-no today. I remember, you know, you'd see you'd see the, the, the cameras panning to the front, and then as they panned back to where they were before, there'd be a guy lying on the ground like that. 
and the other guy looking sheepishly um, unaware of what had gone on. But you'd know what you knew what had gone on. It was played a lot more rougher in those days. They got away with certain things that today is not morally acceptable. Okay, today we have problems with things such as racism. I mean, it all came up in the news recently that a, a girl um, called a particular player an ape. Now, that's fair enough. That's not nice to be called an ape, definitely. And if it has, has connotations that uh, because he was Aboriginal, he was more like an ape than a, uh, than a Caucasian, that was definitely something wrong. Go back 20 years. And they would have called each other all types of names under the sun. You see, the world's morality changes and morphs over time. Sometimes it gets better, sometimes it gets worse. And in, actual, in, in certain areas... It's completely different to the morality of, of another area. So the world doesn't have a sense of morality. You can't say the world's morality is this because it's, it's like shifting sands. So there's a problem. If the world doesn't share a sense of morality and doesn't have a standard of morality, then what is the standard? It would mean there is no standard. The standard is only dependent upon where you live at what time. But the Bible says there is a, a righteousness or a morality that is defined by someone else, that is defined by someone in particular, and that, that person is God. Because God, because he created all things, he has the right to define what is right and what is wrong. So the Bible says that righteousness, if we define it according to God's principles, is a state of moral perfection defined by God's standard, by God's morals. And that's found in his word. And the standard to enter heaven's morality or heaven's standard is absolute perfection according to God's standard. So righteousness has a set standard. It doesn't change. It doesn't change over time and it doesn't change over location. Whether you are living on earth or living in heaven or living in the North Pole or South Pole or even in space... God's standard doesn't change. God's standard is always the same. And righteousness doesn't just refer to a standard. It refers to following God's ways, following that standard. It refers to doing what is good and right. It refers to being just right, in yourself. But more than that, being righteous means you want to see justice and righteousness done around you. Being righteous doesn't just mean oh, all I'm going to worry about is what I do in life and I don't care what anyone else does. No. True righteousness is affected by the unrighteousness that is happening around you. You mourn over that unrighteousness. But the Bible says there are two types of righteousness. There is God's righteousness, in other words, his level of righteousness, and there is man's righteousness. And there's a great example of righteousness on both of the, that defines both of those things which is Genesis 18, 16 to 33. You don't need to turn there. That's fine. I'll just tell you the story. And most of you know it. It's where God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their unrighteousness, because of their sin. And in that, in that particular passage, sin had reached so high, the level of depravity had gone so high, that God says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy those two cities. They were twin cities at that stage. They, they, they had debased themselves so much that God said the only solution to this thing is to destroy both of them with fire. 
Now, he approaches Abraham about this particular thing. And what does Abraham do? The first thing Abraham thinks about is, I have my nephew over there, Lot, and his family. So he starts to ask God a question and says, God, you wouldn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there were 50 righteous. And God says, no, I wouldn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there was 50 righteous. Who's there? What about 20? What about 10? And he keeps going down. And God says, no, I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Okay? Now, there's, there's two parts of that, of that story which tell us what righteousness is about. God demonstrated righteousness by not killing the righteous with the wicked. Would you agree with that? God showed his righteousness by correctly answering Abraham's questions. Okay? Now, Abraham, on the other hand, showed his righteousness and his understanding of it because he's questioned God and, and automatically understood that it wasn't right for God to destroy the righteous of the wicked. So they both showed righteousness and that righteousness actually matched. However, the Bible clearly states that human beings cannot achieve righteousness through their own efforts. We can't attain that level of righteousness because we are trapped in fleshly bodies and the desires of the flesh are not the same as the desires that come from heaven. Okay? Romans 3.20 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law, God gave us the law not so that we could be perfect, by no means. God gave us a law... Because in our striving to try to achieve a law, we realised within ourselves there was absolutely no chance we had to actually keep it. And we couldn't match God's standard. So when you realise you can't do it, when you realise that you're always going to be deficient, what do you need? Help. You need to be saved from that, from that position. You realise that you can't do it on your own effort. That you need someone else to come in and step in and actually rescue you from that position. And that's what the Bible talks about, God's plan of salvation. The only solution to that dilemma that we have was God's plan of salvation. So, let's look at this situation. The Bible says there is a standard of righteousness. God's is always perfect. Man can never achieve it. So, man is always deficient. So, what does God do about that? Turn with me to Romans chapter 10, verse 11. Well, I just shut that blind over there for a moment. Now, Paul's, Paul is talking about Israel over here. But in his, in his discussion about Israel, Paul reveals something very, very um, uh, deep about the righteousness of God and, the, and what, how a person gets saved. Look at uh, chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness... And going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, for everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth these things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, 
Say not in thy heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Okay? So, the righteousness achieved by man is always deficient. This is what this passage is telling us. And though Israel was zealous, they had a great zeal to follow God and, and, and show how holy they were and all this sort of stuff. They were ignorant about the righteousness of God, you see, and the, and the huge gulf between God's righteousness and their righteousness. Instead of seeing the law as a way of showing them how deficient they were, they were trying to, it says there, they were going about, in verse 3, to establish their own righteousness. To establish their own righteousness. They were not submitting themselves to God, God's righteousness because their pride would not allow them to imagine in their hearts that they couldn't achieve it by their own efforts. It was pride that didn't allow them to submit. See, submission requires humbleness. It requires meekness. It requires you to say within yourself, I can't do it. I don't match that standard. And therefore you seek help. But they believe within themselves and by their own efforts, they were going to establish a righteousness that compared with God's. They would not submit themselves into the righteousness of God because to do that, they would admit that they were deficient, not up to scratch. And that was a huge blow to the ego. It was a huge blow to their pride. It's a bit hard to go to someone and say, listen, I was, I'm, I've made a mistake, or I can't do it, or there is something not in me that allows me to reach what you want me to reach. That would take you, that would take repentance, and it would take humbleness, and it would take a broken spirit to do that. But then again, that was their problem, wasn't it? This was the problem of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Look at Matthew 23, verse 27. Matthew 23, verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you like, you like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. So Jesus is saying that all the religious leaders of his day on the outward appeared righteous. They appeared to be righteous, but inward they were full of hypocrisy and dead men's bones. So you compare them to tombs. He compared them to places where dead people stayed. And the, this is the problem. That they couldn't, they couldn't be broken before God. They would not allow their hearts to be broken before him. You see, do you remember the ones, do you remember the verses that came before? Blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I'll read them out to you. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
You can't have those if you have pride. And this was their huge stumbling block because they couldn't, they didn't realise they were poor in spirit. They didn't realise that they were um, poor in their ability to be able to match God's standard. So therefore they couldn't mourn over their own sin. They couldn't mourn over that deficiency. Therefore they couldn't be meek and come before God and say, God, I need your help in this. Because if they had, God would have given them something very, very special. You see, there is something called grace that God gives. And this is what they were lacking completely. God does not give grace to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Bible teaches us over and over again. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, what is grace? Grace makes your insufficient righteousness sufficient before God. It finishes off what you poorly started. It makes what you have, which is next, worth next to nothing, valuable to God. It makes your insufficient righteousness the righteousness that's fit for heaven. I remember reading a book once, and I liked the way he actually put this particular this, uh, this sentence together. And he said... This is how you need to understand grace. Your best day, your best day, because we have our good and our bad days, isn't that right? Your, your and mine best day is never that good that we are beyond the need of God's grace. Our best days are never good enough for us to say, see God, I had a perfect day today, I killed it. I didn't need your help with this one over here. No. Our best days are never so good and never that good that we are beyond the need of God's grace. And you know something else? Yeah, the flip side of that coin, your worst day is never that bad, that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. You can never have a bad enough day that you can't come to God and say, God, I need your help with this. Grace not only makes your, your um, unrighteousness righteous before God, it gives you the ability to do good. It makes you a good person. It plants the desire within you to actually do what's good in the first place. You know, the Bible says that Noah found grace in the sight of God. Noah found grace in the sight of God. He was a, right, he was a righteous man. But even though Noah was a righteous man, his desire to do good didn't cause him to, to raise his pride. It didn't cause him to be a proud man before God. He was always a broken man before God because he continued to understand that he needed God's help. And it was the grace of God which sustained Noah. And the interesting thing is the first place in the Bible where righteousness is actually mentioned, the word righteousness, it's in Genesis 15.6. You know what it refers to? Abraham. It says, And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. He believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. And this verse tells us one, one very important thing about righteousness. That it must be preceded by belief. You can't be righteousness without faith. You can't. You can't establish your own righteousness, which is what the Pharisees were doing. Really deep down, they had no faith. They had faith in themselves, not faith in God. Their faith was in their own ability, not in God's provision. So the one important thing is that 
Righteousness in the end is a pure gift of God. It's a gift, believe it or not. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Romans 5, 17. It says here, for if by one man's offence death reigned by one, that's Adam. Adam sinned. Because of his sin, death reigned by one. Then it says, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. What's righteousness? A gift. How can righteousness be a gift? Well, simply this way. When Jesus lived his life on this earth, he lived the only perfect life that man has ever known, that the history of the world has ever seen. He's the only perfect person. He was the only person from the day he was born to the day he died that actually lived in a perfect standard according to heaven's standard, not earth's. Now, because of that acceptance, because God accepted him into heaven, because God accepted his life, the Bible says that we can now be found in him. So when we connect ourselves to him by faith in him and what God's done for us on that cross and what Christ did on that cross what the Bible says it's almost like we enter into you know Noah's Ark it's like entering into Noah's Ark we didn't actually do anything you, you, you walk into Noah's Ark and, and God shuts the door the world is destroyed and everyone that was in Noah's Ark at that stage is saved and it's a bit like, like that because the Bible says if you are in Christ If you are in him, you are a new creature. God doesn't see you the same anymore. So when we entered into Christ by faith, God doesn't see us anymore and our weaknesses and all our problems. He sees the nature of Christ in us. Now you might say, how does that work? Because God did something amazing for us. Because Jesus' account is perfect. Jesus' account... The Bible says was absolutely perfect. But my account, if I looked at if you if you compare your spiritual bank account, okay, if you look at your, yourself as a spiritual bank account, we are always a negative. And we've always been a negative. We're always deficient. And we can never make up the debt that we had in our bank account. It was like an overdraft that you can never make up. The Bible says when Jesus came along, his account was so rich and so high that he gave his account into ours. He imputed his righteousness, he deposited his goodness into my account. So all of a sudden, my deficiency isn't just levelled off and goes back to zero. My righteousness before God reaches heaven again. Because Jesus says, see this account? We're going to have a joint bank account. (coughs) Joint bank accounts are fantastic, aren't they? They're good. So I've got a joint bank account now with Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter how weak my bank account was, his bank account always overrides mine. I have a full bank account of righteousness before God because of what he's done. Isn't that an amazing thing? That's what's called the, the free gift of righteousness. God has given us that for nothing. God has given us that simply by believing. See how it says about Abraham? It says that um, he believed in God and it was counted to him for righteousness. 
So, we're given righteousness as a gift by having faith in Christ and what he's done for us. And what that does in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it's 18, it says, Therefore, as by the offence of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so the righteousness of one, the free gift, came upon all men unto justification of life. The righteousness of Jesus fulfilled the righteous standard of heaven and because of that righteousness has been added to my account, the Bible says I now have eternal life. Because when God looks at my life, he sees a perfect account. He doesn't see the debt that I had because Jesus paid for that on the cross. He sees the righteousness of his own son. That means I now have eternal life. But not just when I die. Not just when I'm raptured. Not just when I get into heaven. Guess when that account has been filled? It's now filled. My account of righteousness has been filled now. I don't have to wait for that to be done later on. And what does that mean for me now? Is that I have full life now. Ever been in a, in a, in a bad money situation? Many of us have been, who are, who are older, have been in situations where we have either gotten ourselves in debt or gotten ourselves in a situation where money has been a, a, a severe problem. And what does it do to you? Can you live? It's hard to live in that situation. It's hard to, to go through day by day knowing you have a huge debt on your shoulders and you don't know how you're going to get out. If the Bible says that when I came to Christ... And I accepted the sacrifice he made for me and I was found in him. And God placed me within him. The Bible then says, all my debts have been paid. And not just all my debts, but my bank account is now full. Which means I am now rich before God. Rich. Richer than I can ever imagine. And what God has also done for me is that he plants a new nature within me that wants to use that richness that appreciates that richness, that actually wants to grow that richness even more. You know that Albert Einstein once said, the best way to learn something is to do something where you lose track of time. You might say, what's that got to do with anything? You know something? The things you love doing, the things you love to do, even though you may have achieved a great, great amount in a particular thing already, Continue. you love to do it and you lose track of time when you, when you do it. That means you love what you do. If you're looking at your watch every five minutes, you're not loving what you're doing. In other words, you're not absorbing it. Your mind is somewhere else. You'd rather be somewhere else. But if you love what you do, where the time passes, it means you love it and you actually will, will enjoy it and actually learn from it. Now, the same thing goes with Righteousness. You know, people who are rich with money, it's very rare, very rare that a person who is rich in money and has been successful in their life wants to finish making more money. You ever notice that? People who are successful in business want to continue being successful all the time because success makes you, makes you want to be more successful. There's a fellow called Dyson. Anyone got a Dyson vacuum cleaner over here? Oh, yeah, okay, all right, you don't want to put up your hands. <laughs> Dyson vacuum cleaners have only been out for a few years. But the fellow 
called Dyson, had this wonderful idea about creating this, this vacuum cleaner that didn't need a bag and did all these wonderful things. It didn't need to be, uh, you know, it wouldn't ever lose suction. And he bought it to all these different people and everyone rejected him. And he, and he failed over and over and over again until he found some money to actually invest in this thing himself and he actually went ahead and did it. Now, Dyson, who was a, a small-time operator, I think he's English, now was all over the world. Has he stopped because he got his vacuum cleaner out? Has he stopped wanting to be successful because he finally got his vacuum cleaner sold? No, he's still making new and new, more, more and more things. The other day I went to the airport. Ever been in, a, in an airport uh, toilet? Uh, the men's toilet. Uh, probably, probably got them as well. You won't find, in most things, you won't find your, your hand dryers anymore. Because this fellow's come up with another idea now. And the idea is that he's actually, you, you put your hands in and jets of, of air actually shear the water off your hands. You should go to the airport just for that. Just try it out. Because it's quite an experience. You just put your hands in and you pull them out again and, it, and it's, it's shaved all the water off your, uh, off your hands without waiting there for half an hour. Now, that was another idea he came up with. Tell me, has he stopped? No, because success continues to breed success. And when it comes to righteousness, the more righteousness or the, the, the more righteous you are as a person, the more you want to do because it's something you should love, you should desire. And that's what this passage is all about. It's about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. There are many addictions in this world. There are many passions in this world and the, that the word of God warns us about. Things that lead to death and destruction. Things that keep a person in bondage. And our society, believe it or not, as bad as it is, recognises a lot of these addictions. And says, that's bad because it's destructive. And it looks at things like alcoholism and things like smoking and things like violence and, and all those types of things and drugs, speeding, all those things. It realises the weakness of human nature to bondage and actually puts laws in place to try to circumvent those, 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 those types of bondage. Okay? Even the world recognises those bad things and those passions. But the Bible says that there are a whole lot more that society doesn't recognise. And the Bible says that when a person comes to Christ, he is freed from that bondage. He's freed from sin. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 18 with me. Romans chapter 6, verse 18. It says, being then made free from sin. So first of all, you must be freed from your prison. Ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. So when we were under sin, before we gave our hearts to the Lord, the Bible says that we were slaves to righteousness. Sorry, slaves to sin. Freed from righteousness. In other words, we didn't understand what it was. Our desire, that desire wasn't there. But the Bible says that when we gave our hearts to the Lord, the Lord came in and inhabited our hearts. The Bible then says that he freed us from that bondage to sin and gave us a new desire to become servants to righteousness. In other words, you switch your allegiance. What's happened is an exchange has occurred. You no longer desire 
sin, but your new nature desires righteousness, which you begin to chase after. And they look, and we look for righteousness because we understand that our spiritual poverty never gave anything to the Lord. And now we want to start pleasing him. We want to start pleasing our new master, which is Christ. And Christ gives us the ability. And to hunger and thirst after righteousness doesn't mean a half-hearted attempt. It doesn't mean, oh, I'll give it a crack every you know, five minutes a day, or ten minutes a day, or half an hour a day, or two hours a day, or five hours a day. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that you look to do good things at a certain, in a certain percentage of your week. It means that at every possible instant, you are looking to do good and right. And that becomes your all-consuming desire. There is a glimpse of this type of passion that King David gives us. Have a listen to this. Psalm 42, verse 1. As the heart, which is a deer, panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This is the type of desire the Bible says. Ever seen pictures of a deer panting with its tongue sticking out? It desires water. It's desiring uh, that, that coolness. But too many Christians don't have that desire. Not that type of desire. We often fill ourselves with things of the world, with things that don't really satisfy. And the desire for God is only half. We desire the things of the world, but we want to desire the things of God as well. And we play this game where we try to have both at the same time. The Bible says that the type of desire that a Christian should have for righteousness, for doing good, for running away from evil, should be like a one-eyed obsession. It should be the thing that consumes our hearts more than everything else and our mind, wanting to do good. And not because we want to do good because we need to earn anything. Remember, our bank account's already full. It's not because of that. It's because we want to please the one who loved us and showed us that love. It comes out of a heart of gratitude. And a baby's born. What do they do when they don't get their food? John, you can answer that one, I suppose. When a baby's born, it's born with an appetite it does not understand. All it understands is that there's a grumbling in the stomach and there's a, there's a, there's a, a desire that's there that's not being fulfilled, not being met. So a baby cries when it doesn't get its food. That should be the type of desire the Christian has. That when you're not filled, you want more and more of it. And when we were unsaved, our natural appetite was to sin, to feed the flesh. But the Bible says that our new appetite is to feed the spirit, is to feed the relationship that we have with Christ. In John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. When you are born again, the Bible says, God plants within you a new appetite. Just like a baby when they're born has an appetite for milk, we have a new appetite, and that's righteousness. So let me close off with, with what it looks like 
because this is half of our problem. What does righteousness look like? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read a passage, and I think it's going to give you a, a decent idea about what righteousness looks like in God's eyes. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye, putting off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, put away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbour, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, Neither, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labour, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Is that a nice picture of, uh, of righteousness? I think it is. And what it shows us is that there's a, a substitution that's taking place, that our, our old life should be put away and replaced with a completely new type of life. If you, were st- if you were a robber before, don't rob anymore. But replace it with something good. Work to give. In other words, your focus goes away from yourself to someone else. To others. To help others. And it's the same thing with all those things. You'll notice the things which he speaks about here. They go from focusing on yourself to actually serving others. And that's the main, the main issue here. That's the main thing about righteousness. Right, true righteousness wants to be right to others. It has an effect on other people. It doesn't just exist within yourself. It actually has ramifications that affect everyone else around you. Remember I said to you that righteousness is not just what you want to do. It's actually wanting to see justice done around you. We will continue to mourn over righteousness because there's a lot of unrighteousness happening in the world today. Things that we will never be able to fix, things which affect us directly. But you know something? You can make a difference in this world. 
The Bible says that if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you will mourn over sin in this world, but at the same time, you can live a life of righteousness that God has given you the ability to do, and you can make a difference to everyone else around you. Let's examine our hearts and let's see our desire, where it is. Do we really have that desire, that hungering, that love to do righteousness because of the relationship we have in Christ? You know, one day, there'll be no more mourning. We won't have to struggle with sin that surrounds us and is within us. We will one day be fully satisfied. But until then, let's nurture that desire for righteousness. Let's strive to continue to please the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's do good to everyone around us for Jesus' sake. God bless you. Thank you.